Good morning. I want to thank Mike for offering me the opportunity to come and bring God's Word to you this morning. I want to thank the session uh, for uh, agreeing with Mike, or, or li- at least listening with Mike, uh, and giving me uh, this opportunity to bring to you the Word of God. I had the privilege and the pleasure of being Mike's pastor for Mike and Lee's pastor for about five years, and all you have to do is ask them to know that part of my philosophy of ministry is to make the Old Testament known to the people of God. I love the Old Testament, but it seems like a strange world, does it not? So so far removed from 21st century America, and so uh, we struggle to understand it. We struggle to, to read it and know how it uh, is still relevant for our lives today, as well as how it points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I invite you to turn with me to a very strange passage. Perhaps you've never come across it uh, in your Bible reading. I ask that you would turn in God's holy word to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 31. You will learn that I am very unconventional. So, you know, instead of this strange pastor that you don't know from Adam bringing you a psalm or something that's well known or or a gospel or a Pauline epistle, we're going to look at this passage today. Numbers chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, If a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her and in his hand uh, and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath saying If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar. And afterward shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, The water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away. And the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, 
then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to understand the relevance of this passage and how it is profitable to us as breathed out by your very mouth, how it is profitable to us for correction and rebuke and training in righteousness as well as to see Christ in this passage. So open our eyes, open our ears, and Lord, we ask that your Spirit would work through the preaching of your word. May my mouth be your mouthpiece and my words acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the April 10th, 2021 issue of World Magazine, there was an article titled Translation Abuse which chronicled how abortion advocates were using a certain translation of the Bible to justify abortion, arguing using this particular translation that Numbers chapter 5, verse 27, which is part of our passage this morning, justifies abortion because God commits abortion. Given the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade, more and more as Christians, we need to be prepared to answer the world when they make such allegations, when they try to pervert and twist the words of our holy God uh, for their political and unjust and unrighteous purposes, we need to be prepared to answer them, right? The New Testament tells us always be prepared in season and out of season. And so today I want us to look at this entire section to equip you and me to have the tools that we need to understand God's word rightly so that we may have an answer when those around us twist and pervert the Holy Scriptures. Our first point this morning comes from verses 11 through 15 where we see the accusation. The accusation. Now in our modern day, when an allegation is made, an investigation is launched, looking for evidence, trying to discern the facts of the case, that would back up the allegation, right? Whether it's a a civil court, whether it's a court of the church in a church discipline case, an investigation is uh, made to determine the truth, right? We want to know the truth. As people of God, truth matters. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. doesn't necessarily work that way in a fallen world, does it? In church discipline cases, when a charge is made, an investigator is appointed to investigate the charges to see if there is anything to substantiate those charges. And if the accusation is true, if there's evidence that helps substantiate it, then you move into the next phase of that trial. In our modern era, with the prevalence of smartphones and cameras everywhere, some of you may be recording this even now, as both our neighbor and big brother is watching over us, all that we say, all that we do, it's very difficult to hide things. Not impossible, but it's difficult to hide things in our day and age. Usually, you can find the evidence. Usually, it is there if a crime or a sin has been committed. But in ancient Israel, they did not have this technology They did not have all the means that are available to us for gathering evidence. And so we come to a case here in Numbers chapter 5 where a spirit of jealousy has come over a husband who suspects his wife of having an affair. But there's no way to prove his suspicions. What was he to do? You think something is going on. You think something has happened. But there's no proof. In other ancient Near Eastern countries, in the the neighboring countries around Israel at this day and time, a jealous husband could simply place his wife's hand in a pot of boiling water. And if her hand was not harmed, then she was guilty of adultery. 
and subsequently punished. If her hand was burned, she was innocent. But her hand was burned. This may remind you of the Salem witch trials where a woman suspected of being a witch was lowered underwater for a time. If she survived, she was a witch. Subsequently, subsequently, she was killed. She was burned at the stake. If she drowned, well, at least that proves she wasn't a witch. We're sorry. These practices are barbaric and they are very unfair. And I want us to see the difference here and how, how Israel was unlike her neighbor. The Lord did not allow his people to, to carry out such barbaric and unjust practices. Look at verses 12 through 15. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, so he doesn't catch them in the act, and there's no witness, verse 13 says, there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. So here we have a case where a husband is suspicious, but, but you need witnesses. Witnesses were the primary evidence in Israel's day. And you needed two or three witnesses. It couldn't just be one witness. So there's no evidence to back up this husband's suspicion. But notice, the jealous husband is not free to make his wife undergo any ordeal that he wants her to do. The Lord regulates what the husband is to do in such a situation. The husband cannot try to take vengeance into his own hands in a circumstance where he is suspicious. He doesn't have absolute authority to do whatever he wants like the husband did in their surrounding countries. Verse 13 indicates that one who has actually committed adultery wasn't caught in the act and there are no witnesses to the supposed adultery. But verse 14 presents another case. The, spirit, the same spirit of jealousy has come over the husband, but the wife has not sinned. Look at verse 14. If the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. Remember, there's no evidence. So you don't know whether an affair has taken place or not. In either case, we have an accusation without evidence. What is he to do? His recourse is to bring his wife before the Lord through the Lord's representative and intercessor, the priest, rather than acting on his own accord. This is an ecclesiastical, this is a church process being carried out in a church court rather than the man taking personal vengeance into his own hands. In a male-dominated society, it would be easy for men to make baseless accusations to achieve some sinful end, whether it was to be free of his wife, whether it's to, to marry another one. Remember that Jesus says it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed a certificate of divorce and the Israelites had abused that. And if a man didn't like his wife's cooking, I divorce you. And she is left on her own to defend herself. She's no longer under her husband's authority and protection and provision. It is easy to take advantage of weaker people and to oppress them and to use them for for sinful purposes. And so, so the Lord is regulating this process to remind the men that you cannot do whatever you want in a situation where you are suspicious. But the Lord regulates it because this is a moral issue, is it not? This is a spiritual issue. It's a, it's a matter of sin. It's a matter of righteousness and holiness. So the priest, as God's representative, presides over this case. And it's going to cost the man something. It's going to cost him. Look at verse 15. He is to bring a grain offering of jealousy. A tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy. Now the grain offering is given to us in Leviticus chapter 2. And it usually had oil and frankincense mixed in with 
the flower indicating a, a sweet smell and the, the pleasant aroma and the, the joy of fat. The grain offering was giving thanks to God because he had caused the crop to produce. But there is no joy in suspecting one's spouse of adultery. There is nothing pleasant whatsoever in thinking that your mate could have possibly broken your marriage vows with someone else. And so those elements of joy are missing from this offering, but it's costing him this ephah of barley flour that he could use to, to feed his family or to, to sell and trade in the marketplace or to feed to his animals. There's a cost to being jealous. There's a cost to being suspicious. And so this is a somber grain offering being brought, a grain offering of jealousy. And the intention is to, to make known whether adultery has occurred or not. From this first point, we can draw out a couple of applications for us today. First, it is wise to give no appearance of evil, no appearance of evil, so that your spouse never has to suspect that you have been unfaithful. It is wise to give no appearance of evil, so that your spouse never has to suspect that you have been unfaithful. Several years ago, people made fun of the Mike Pence rule, also known as the the Billy Graham rule, perhaps you remember that, being in the, in the press and the media ate it up and, and mocked Mike Pence, Vice President Pence, and, and mocked these men for, for having this archaic and patriarchal rule. If you don't remember the rule, they, they had covenanted, they had purposed and resolved within themselves, both Billy Graham as, long, as well as uh, leaders in his Billy Graham crusades, and Mike Pence had resolved that they would never eat alone with another woman in public. Now, that's not necessarily a scriptural rule binding on all of God's people. Nevertheless, there is wisdom in resolving to do that because they were intentionally avoiding putting themselves in a situation where their spouse or other people around them in public could suspect them of infidelity. Something going on? You know, people's minds are easy to jump to suspicions, right? We see a man eating alone with a woman who's not his wife, and oh, what's going on? Is there something going on between those two? We're easy to suspect the worst, right? And so there is wisdom in trying to avoid putting ourselves in situations where people can be suspicious. Additionally, we must guard ourselves against baseless thoughts or suspicious thoughts that have no grounding whatsoever against our spouse. Paul tells us in that famous passage of love in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not envious, love is not provoked, your translation may say irritable, it believes all things, it hopes all things. So there's a two-way street here in marriage. We must not put ourselves in circumstances that could give off a hint of unfaithfulness. And this includes what you do on social media, right? If you are married, you don't present yourself as single on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, right? And you certainly don't privately message other women, right? Or text message, texting or TikTok. I don't even use TikTok, so that's, that's above my pay grade these days. They're, all the apps are getting out of control, and I can't keep up. And it's, uh, it's hopeless to keep up, so don't even try. But it includes how we present ourselves and how we use social media. You know, what happens if your wife catches you texting with another woman late at night? She has every reason to believe that something might be going on, so don't do it. Don't text somebody who's not your spouse late at night. Don't text inappropriate things. So we must not put ourselves in situations that could give off hints or suspicions of unfaithfulness, but we also have to guard our hearts and our thoughts so as not to be led astray with suspicions that have no basis in reality. We, we can't live our marriages out always being suspicious of our spouse, right? Your wife tells you she's going to the grocery store. Don't jump to, oh, she's going to meet and hook up with somebody, right? 
We shouldn't. We've got to guard ourselves. So it's a two-way street there. This brings us to our second point from verses 16 through 26, where we see the action. We've seen the accusation, and now we see the action, which is based on the accusation. The woman is set before the Lord in the presence of the priest and the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God. And and some water is taken from the, the basin that was in the tabernacle. This was water that was used for purification. So it is it's holy water, and it's it's further sanctified, this water, by being mixed with dust from the tabernacle. Look at verse 17. The priest shall take holy water from the purification water in the temple. He'll put it in an earthenware vessel, a, a jar of clay, take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, and put it into the water. So this is water that has been sanctified and set apart for God's holy purpose. Then the woman's hair is loosened either to signify remorse or to signify potential uncleanness. Either way, she is set before the Lord and presented as a humble servant. Look at verse 18. The priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place her in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of Jealousy. And then she's made to take an oath, an oath of self-imprecation or self-curse. Have you ever heard somebody say, may God strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth? Something to that effect. You're calling a curse down upon yourself if indeed you're a liar. This is what's going on in this situation, a self-curse. If she is guilty, she's calling down the punishment of God, not her husband. Upon herself. Look at verses 19 through 22. The priest shall make her take an oath, swear an oath, saying, If no man has laid with you, if you've not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, then you are free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has laid with you, then the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. The woman is innocent. She has nothing to fear. At the end of the day, a woman who is suspected of adultery in a case where there is no evidence, the innocent woman only ends up drinking some bitter water. It's completely safe for her. There's nothing for her to fear, unlike those Salem witch trials and the practices of Israel's neighbors at that time. So a woman who knew she was innocent would have no problem, verse 22, saying, Amen, Amen. She gives her assent to this whole ordeal. She's not having a gun forced to her head. She gives her assent to this whole ordeal. And if she is innocent, she has nothing to fear. She just drinks some water mixed in with some dirt. After saying the oath, the priest writes the words of this oath, this curse, in ink on parchment, and then rinses the ink off into the holy water. Look at verse 23. The priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. So now the water has ink. The water has dust in it. He shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. This is a symbolic action showing that the words of the oath and the self-curse are being transferred into the water. The woman is literally drinking the curse upon herself. But this is a curse that has entered into holy water. Water that has had dust signifying the presence of the Lord mixed in with it. So there is holiness. The Lord's holiness is at work here. And he is the one who will supernaturally make this water either affect the woman in the case of guilt or not affect the woman in the case of innocence. This is not some superstitious or magic ritual. This is all dependent upon the power, the sovereign might of the Lord God, Yahweh himself, who knows and sees all. He knows whether the woman is guilty or not. And so he is the one who is acting as judge 
He who has all of the evidence and knows all of the facts in every case, he is acting as judge in a situation where there is no earthly evidence. There is still spiritual evidence from the omniscience and the omnipresence of the Lord God Almighty. But this also points us to the work of Christ. Christ was innocent, was he not? The spotless Lamb of God. But Scripture testifies that he drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank the curse upon himself. And the Lord God made him a curse for us. He was innocent. He should have been free of the curse. And yet, he willingly took the curse upon himself. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He drank the cup of bitterness. And he drank it to the last drop. For all of those who are in Christ, there's no more hell to pay. There is no curse standing over your head. It has all been poured out upon Christ at the cross. And the Lord God has accepted it because He is the spotless Lamb. He is the only one who has ever lived a perfectly righteous life. So He can present Himself as the spotless Lamb in place of His people. He takes His death. He takes death upon Himself so that you and I might live forever. So in this whole process of holiness of drinking bitterness. Here we see the, the, the work and the person of Jesus Christ, who though he was innocent, who though he should have never been cursed, was made a curse for us. And by him taking that curse upon himself, you and I are healed. Amen. Let us continue looking at this. So this woman is caused to drink this water of bitterness, verse 24, that brings the curse. It recalls the bitter water that Israel should not drink, or that they could not drink at Marah in Exodus chapter 15, which means place of bitterness. In in that passage in Exodus 15, God showed Israel that it was a test. If they obeyed him, they would not suffer the curses that came upon Egypt. There's a parallel here. This is a test. If the woman has obeyed God, he will turn the bitterness into sweetness. She will be free from the accusation and she will have children. And this was the the highest goal. This was the goal of every woman in Old Testament Israel, to bear children, to continue that the lineage, to continue the husband's name, to continue to partake in the, the promise that God had given to Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars to continue the land inheritance that would be theirs. The final part of this action, this ritual, in verses 26 and 27, the priests, or 25 and 26, the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand, shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar, and a portion of it is burned, and then she is made to drink the water. The rest of it, the portion that's not burned, according to Leviticus 2, would be given to the priests to eat. And notice that this whole thing begins and ends with Yahweh. It begins with the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and it ends with the the offering being waved before the Lord. This whole process begins and ends with God. Ian, do good. Presbyterian minister says this, the test was not thought of as magic. There was nothing intrinsic in the water or dust or ink that would harm her if she were an adulteress. Only God could bring about the curse upon her. It was an act of faith on the part of the woman and the community placing judgment in the hands of God who sees the unseen rather than in the hands of man. This is God giving out his recompense not man taking vengeance into his own hands. Here we see that even secret sins are known to God, and he will bring them to light. You may think to yourself, well, you know, I haven't acted upon that sinful thought. I haven't acted upon my lust. I haven't acted upon my my anger. 
haven't acted upon my greed, my lack of contentment, but God sees it. You don't have to act for God to see and to know the, the very recesses of your soul, who you are, what you want, even those sinful desires. And if He doesn't bring them to light in the here and now, we know from Scripture that one day He will bring them to light. Even if sin goes unpunished in this life, there is a day coming when God will, quote, judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, Romans 2.16. This leads us to our final point, which is the after effect in verses 27 through 29. The after effect. And here I want to focus on the strangeness of the outcome if the woman is guilty. It's first given to us in verse 21, and here it's reiterated what happens to the woman if she is guilty. The ESV translates it, your thigh will fall away. An earlier version of the ESV says your, your uh, womb will swell. Uh, they switch it back and forth depending on which version of the ESV you have as they make updates to it. So make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. However, the NIV released an update in 2011. And it translated it this way. Her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry. Her womb will miscarry. In other words, the NIV translation from 2011 assumes that a child has been conceived from this adulterous tryst. And the Lord is going to kill the child of the adulterous affair through this ritual. And so abortion advocates have latched on to the 2011 NIV and onto this verse to say that the Lord is carrying out an abortion, therefore abortion must be okay. I mean, if God is going to do it, why is it not okay for us to do it? But, but nothing in the text says that the woman has conceived within herself. That's an assumption that's being made by the translators of the NIV. The ESV has literally translated it and leaves it up to us to discern what the heck does this mean? What the heck does it mean your womb will swell and your thigh will fall away? It's difficult. The wording here is very obscure and rare in the Hebrew Bible, which tells us one thing. First, it's dangerous to build an entire theology or ethical position on one verse that's unclear to us. And difficult to understand. One of the main principles of faithfully interpreting the word of God is that clear passages, those where there is no question, are to be used to interpret the more difficult passages, those that are less clear. Not the other way around. The word for swell here is, the, is used only once right here in all of the Old Testament. The word thigh, when used elsewhere, refers to procreation. And it's, it's hard to know exactly what the curse is, but it seems to be barrenness. The curse upon her is not that she is with child and the child is going to die. The curse is that she will be barren and not able to conceive children. Look at verse 28. If the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. By good and necessary consequence, using a logic, if, if the innocent woman is, is free to go forth and conceive children, then it seems that the guilty woman, it would stand by reason, would it not, that the guilty woman is not freed and she will not be able to bear children. She is the opposite. The guilty woman is the opposite of, of the innocent woman. The innocent woman is clean and free and able to conceive. The guilty woman is unclean. She is guilty. She is enslaved and in bondage. and She is unable to conceive children. The curse doesn't make her miscarry. The curse makes her barren because of her adultery. And as I said earlier, this would have been major for a woman in these times. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel who wanted a child so desperately that she was willing to give that child up and dedicate him to temple service in the Lord. Just give me a child. She's being provoked by Elkanah's other wife. 
being made fun of because she hasn't born a child. And she's praying so desperately for a child that the, that the dim-witted priest Eli thinks she's drunk. That's how intense her fervor and zeal was for a child as she's praying to the Lord. Think of the other barren women in the Old Testament. Sarah, Abraham's wife. Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Rachel, Jacob's wife. The mother of Samson in Judges 13. The adulterous woman's curse was that she would be barren and not able to produce offspring of iniquity. This would bring her shame and reproach for all time. She would lose out on the possibility of having a male child to carry on the family name and lineage, to carry on the family inheritance, which if you read the book of Ruth, that's what it's all about. is inheritance, a name for Naomi. She would miss out on the Abrahamic promise of being a a part of adding to the innumerable seed promised to Abraham. She would miss out on being the one that God possibly chose to bring forth the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. The Messiah. And this was God's supernatural doing. We must always remember that. This is not... An abusive husband. This is not human revenge, vengeance in our own hands. This is God's supernatural dealing. But let's just suppose for a moment that the woman is pregnant and that this curse does cause her to miscarry. Let's let's suppose that the NIV 2011 has gotten it right. I don't think they have, but let's suppose that they have. That still would not justify abortion. Here's why. Just because God is able to do something does not mean that we can. Say that again. This is important. Just because God is able to do something does not mean that we can. God calls you and me not to take vengeance into our own hands. Romans 12, 19, Hebrews 10, 30, which is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. We are not allowed to take vengeance into our own hands. But what does God say? Vengeance is mine. That's right. Right? So there is a case where we cannot do something that God can and still remain perfectly holy and just and righteous and merciful and gracious. God calls us not to make any images of himself or, or any of his creation to worship in the second commandment, but God can image himself in the person of his son. The image of his son. God has imaged himself in Jesus Christ, the son of God who is worthy of all of our worship. So again, there's another issue where we're not allowed to do something that God can. God took the child that resulted from David and Bathsheba's adultery, but that doesn't mean we can kill children after they are born. I mean, upon the logic of abortion advocates, that would justify that practice, would it not? That's that's bad. That's wrong. That's a a twisted interpretation of Scripture. If we can't kill children after they are born, we can't kill children before they are born. Even if God does, why? Because life and death belongs to God. He is the author of life. He is the giver of life. And He is the taker away of life. One day He will take away my life when, when all my days that are written in His book are completed. He has set a number of days for me and you to walk on this earth And when those days are done, he will take our life back to himself. For all who are in Christ, our souls will enter, uh, will be made perfect in glory and enter into the presence of God. Today you will be with me in paradise. And our bodies, which are still united to Christ, as the shorter catechism puts it, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Life and death belongs to God and to those whom he has apportioned it to, like the civil government in the cases of death penalty. But it doesn't belong to us in cases of of personal revenge or just because we want to take somebody's life because we felt like it or because that life was an inconvenience or because that life will will, uh, inhibit my own personal happiness and satisfaction. God says in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I... 
Even I am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there heal. Sorry, forgive my southern accent. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. As Vern Poitras, professor at Westminster Seminary, puts it, God has a right to take life whenever he wants. And of course he does. But that does not mean we can take a life whenever we want. Remember, God is causing this curse to happen because of sin. Because of sin. The whole point of of Numbers chapter 5 and this particular section is holiness and a curse happening because of sin, which here is represented as unfaithfulness. Death is God's verdict upon sin, whether, whether it's a sin of thought or a sin of deed, a sin of omission or a sin of commission. So even if Miss Carrie does get at the sense of what's going on here, it does not by any stretch of the imagination justify abortion. May it never be so. To use this passage to justify abortion is a a vile and blasphemous twisting of Scripture by those who are hardened in their hearts, who are trying to pacify a seared conscience and justify themselves in their sin rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do not think miscarriage is what is going on here. I do believe it is barrenness. That is the curse of God's verdict when adultery has occurred, but there's no human evidence, no witnesses to prove it. And so in the end, when all is said and done, with a lack of physical evidence, God, the truthful judge, ends up revealing to his people the truth of the situation. God, who knows and sees all things, reveals either the guilt or the innocence of the woman, and if guilty, she suffers consequences for her sin. And if innocent, she suffers no consequences. Because we're talking about the people of God here, the church in the Old Testament, and God is a holy God, and he requires holiness from his people. You shall be holy even as I am holy. Pursue holiness without which nobody can see God. And of course, we can only do that through Jesus Christ, the only one who is perfectly holy. You and I are not. This whole section may seem barbaric and cruel to our modern ears. Feminists like to blast it as an example of abuse of patriarchy. However, this ritual ends up being God's means to protect the woman from false accusations. Who in the ancient Near East is going to be listened to if a man accuses his woman of adultery? The man. But he has no way to prove it. So God, dealing with Israel, his covenant people, says, I will prove it to you through this ritual. But it also protects the camp of God's people when adultery in secret has occurred, which defiles not only those involved, but if left unchecked, would defile the entire camp. God's people. Think about it. If you can commit adultery in secret and get away with it, you can just expect it to spread like leaven and yeast through a lump of dough, right? And then all of God's people would be defiled whom God had said you are to be holy even as I am holy. It's all about holiness. Holiness uh, amongst the corporate people of God, holiness in relationship to others, and holiness in marriage. Matthew Henry writes, the purity of the church must be as carefully consulted and preserved as the peace and order of it. That's why the kings of the kingdom have been given to the session. That's why church discipline has been given to the church for the purity of the church, for the reclaiming of a brother or sister who has offended, bringing them to repentance, bringing them back to the church, the mercy and grace of God, But if they refuse to repent, you kick them out. Why? Because sin contaminates. Sin is contagious. And we, by our natures, are born in sin. And so we don't need sin contaminating us even more than we already are contaminated. We are prone to sin. We are prone to wander, as the hymn puts it, are we not? We don't need to be encouraged by sin being left unchecked within the people of God. It is through church discipline that 
the unrepentant is removed from the midst of God's people, where God has especially said, there I will be present. Where two or three, and there's more than two or three here gathered today, are gathered in my name, there I am also. But the good news is this. God has provided a way for the unrepentant to come back into the camp through Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection and ascension. We see from today's passage that one aspect of sin is unfaithfulness. When you read the Old Testament, worshiping other gods was called spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Israel was unfaithful in her covenant marriage to God as her husband, just like Christ. The bride is married to Christ. Uh, The church is married to Christ as the bridegroom. The solution for unfaithfulness is faithfulness. And the book of Revelation calls Jesus Christ the faithful and the true. He has been faithful to the Father where we have been unfaithful. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes answer for your spiritual adultery and my spiritual adultery when we sin when we are unfaithful to our God of the covenant. Hosea 2, 16-20 says this, In that day, talking about the day of the Lord, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today, if you are living a a physically adulterous life against your spouse or a spiritually adulterous life against the one true and living God, thinking that you can get away with it, thinking that it does not matter what you do in this life, turn to Him. Turn to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and the promise of God in Scriptures that He will never turn away all who come to Him by faith. The Scripture of encouragement this morning ended with, none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Take refuge in Christ today. Salvation and forgiveness through Jesus the Messiah is offered to you today. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from your false gods. Whatever is is utmost and of, of number one priority in your life, turn to the compassionate and good and faithful and holy Jesus Christ. I don't know you from Adam or Eve. I know abortion can be a very difficult subject matter, and perhaps there's some here today who have had an abortion perhaps before you were converted. Let me encourage you that abortion is not the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. If you've had that and you think that Jesus Christ could never accept me because of what I've done, don't listen to that lie from the evil one. Jesus stands ready with arms open wide to receive you if you will but come and trust in Him alone. For us here today, who are in Christ, we need to see that God takes holiness seriously. God takes holiness seriously. Even our secret thoughts, those hidden sins we think we've gotten away with or are getting away with or will get away with will be brought to light by the true and faithful judge. Let us remember that we are called to pursue Christ's likeness once we are in Christ. And Christ is holy. And we should pursue holiness by by turning away from our sins, by, by putting to death the deeds of the flesh that are within us and looking forward to the end of the finish line, looking to the one who stands ready and waiting to receive us like he was standing there ready to receive Stephen as he was being stoned. And to hear those blessed words, well done, my good and faithful servants. Let us run the race, Paul says, with endurance. Let us pursue holiness. But also, uh, my prayer for you today is that you will be better equipped to handle the Word of God. Somebody tries to use this verse with you to justify abortion. Take the time, 
Even if it's hours on end, it's worth it for the spiritual value. Even if you have to cut away things that you were going to do, even if you have to, to put aside cutting the grass, you're dealing with somebody who has an immortal soul where life and death is in the balance, eternal life and death is in the balance. So take time with them to work through the passage. Don't let them pull it out of context with no regard for what Scripture teaches elsewhere, with no regard for God's holy character. Instead, use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Use the context here to rightly interpret the passage. And while you are doing that, pray within yourself that God the Spirit would open their eyes to see see their sin, see their misery, and see that Christ is the only hope and the only remedy. And use that opportunity to call them to faith and repentance by faith alone in Christ alone. To God alone be the glory. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we would always remember the that you have called us to holiness in Christ and that, that you are making us more holy each and every day. That is what sanctification means. Through, through the ordinary means of grace, your word, the sacraments and prayer, the corporate fellowship of your people. We are not in this race alone. You have given us your Holy Spirit and you have given us the church to help us run with endurance and to, to keep our eyes steadfast upon Christ to pursue holiness, that our lives may align with our profession of faith, that the unbelieving world may see our good deeds and glorify you. Lord, increase in us a desire and motivation to live and to work for your glory, to preserve holiness within our marriages, to make a covenant with our eyes like Job did, not to even look upon another woman with lust. Look upon another man with lust. Preserve holiness among your people. Equip the elders here to be gentle when they need to be gentle. To be faithful in church discipline, though it is hard and unpleasant. But it is a means that you have given to the church to be the church and to reflect your holy character. In Christ our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen.